want to direct your attention this morning to Psalm 81. In John chapter 10, as you're finding your place in Psalm 81, in John 10, we're told by Jesus that he has come that we may have life and that we may have it more abundantly. So that should lead us to a question. What is the abundant life? What is the abundant life? Well, if you were to go to John 10 and read it, you'll notice that the abundant life begins in Christ. He says there in John 10 that he is the door or the way or opening unto salvation. If any man enters by him, he will be saved and go out and find pasture. You know, that, that language is borrowed from or built upon the language of the 23rd Psalm that, Lord willing, we all know very well, the Lord is our shepherd, my shepherd, I shall not want. So I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. How many of you, I'm including myself, how many of us are living the abundant life? How many of you feel like you are right now at this point in time in the green pasture and being led beside the still water? And let me be very careful to define the abundant life. I'm going to define it the way a writer named Octavius Winslow defines it. He says, it is not so much that the believer lives, but that Christ lives in the believer. That's the abundant life. Didn't Paul say, Christ is in you, and that is the hope of your glory. So very often when we think about the abundant life, or we hear someone speak about the abundant life, we are led to believe that the abundant life is you know, defined by the things that we possess or our abilities or our skill, how happy we are, how blessed we are. And that is at best a, a partial truth. The abundant life is lived in Christ, Christ in you, being your hope, my hope of glory, and then everything going out from there. Peter summarizes this in 2 Peter chapter 1. When he says this, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Jesus has given us everything we need to live life both in the world and in the spirit. He's given us everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. And this has come through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue. By which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises. That through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So here's the second question for us all. To what degree do we realize that we have become partakers of the divine nature and have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Are you where you want to be in that journey? I'm not. The scriptures tell us that we have been given all sufficiency in Christ. 
Why then do we so often find ourselves languishing in the things of God? Why do we so often find our hearts lukewarm or even cold to the things of God and to the things of the Lord? That was one of the harshest criticisms that Christ had for one of the churches in the book of Revelation, their lukewarmness. They weren't cold, neither were they the opposite of that, hot to the things of God. They were stale, unconcerned, passive. What causes this? Psalm 81, we're going to see as a remedy. If the, if the Spirit of God is so pleased to take it and apply it to our hearts and understanding, it's a remedy for lukewarmness, coldness. Of all the things that cause it, and we could, we could comprise quite a list of things that cause our soul to become lukewarm or cold to the things of God. For one, we are the most distracted generation in society ever. It amazes me sometimes to go back and to read things written by, you, you may recognize the name A.W. Pink. The amount of material that he produced, that he wrote, that he published is astounding. In, in one lifetime, and he didn't live to be all that old. And you have someone like Jonathan Edwards, the same would apply to him, left truckloads of things that he wrote that are helpful and beneficial. But yet here we find ourselves finding it hard to find the time to even read the scriptures, much less any of this, this wealth of information that our brothers gone before have left us because of distraction because of giving our attention, our abilities to other things. But though that is true, I think one of the other ways that we become cold to the things of God, I'm going to again quote Octavius Winslow here. He says, The secret departure from God may exist in connection with an outward or rigid observance of the means of grace. Keep listening. He says, yet there shall be no spiritual use of or enjoyment in these means. And the means of grace are things like what we're doing now. Preaching the word, reading the word, praying, observing communion, seeing someone baptized, going over into the fellowship hall, fellowshipping in the things of Christ. All of these are means of grace. They are ways that the Lord dispenses grace to his people. So back to this thought. He says, it, and this may be the great lullaby of the Christian's soul, being rocked to sleep by a mere form of religion. The believer is beguiled into the delusion that his heart is right before God and his soul prospering. Now let me summarize all of that. That was wordy, but basically what he's saying here is that the form of religion, the fact that you're sitting in the pew, the fact that I'm standing here if we're not careful, that mere outward shell and form will delude us into thinking that our heart is right before God, that we are not lukewarm to the things of God, but spiritually 
having an increasing appetite for the things of God. And so I ask you to turn to Psalm 81 this morning for this reason. Psalm 81, if your Bible gives a heading to it, may say something similar to mine, an appeal for Israel's repentance. In Psalm 81, we're going to hear the Lord speaking to a people who have grumbled against him, who have taken his blessings for granted, who had been led by still waters, and that very literally, you remember the Lord brought them out of Egypt. The waters piled up as a heap. They went through, and yet all of that seems to have been lost upon them. So we can make this assumption. If a people who saw these great works of God firsthand in a very short space of time can become cold-hearted to the things of God, certainly we can too. You think of those that saw the miracles of Jesus. We've looked at some of those recently. Those that saw the great things Christ did that couldn't be explained in any other way than that he was the Son of God manifesting his power on earth. They saw those things, were witness, and even benefited from them, and very soon after turned from him and left to follow him no more. If they who were so privileged could do it, so could we. And so Psalm 81, I want to read it in its entirety. And really it's, it's broken down into a couple of parts. The first five verses are really a call to worship and a call to recognize the Sabbath day for what it is, the great benefit and blessing of it. Verses 6 and 7 are a reminder of the greatness of our salvation, what the Lord has done for us in figurative language. And then the end of the psalm is an invitation to return to the Lord and to be greatly blessed, to be greatly filled. So let's read it, beginning in verse 1. Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp, with the lute. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon, on our solemn feast day. For this is a statute for Israel, a law of the God of Jacob. He established in Joseph, this he established in Joseph as a testimony when he went throughout the land of Egypt. Where I heard a language I did not understand. So I'm not going to deal much with those first five verses, but just know and see and recognize that The Lord is here reminding his people of the importance of praise. Notice the language. Sing aloud. Make a joyful shout. Raise a song. Strike the timbrel. Use the harp. Use the lute. Blow the trumpet. All of this on the solemn feast day. For Christians, now that we are living under the new covenant and not the old, this is the solemn feast day. This is the day that is unlike any of the rest of of our week. One person has said the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day is so peaceful and so precious. It breaks in the cold monotony of life. It breaks in on the cold monotony of life. 
One of the things that, that is a sure mark of our maturing in the things of God is an increasing love for the Lord's day. It's a day unlike any other. It's a day where the Lord does for us as we meet together what he does for us uniquely in the assembly of his people. I can sing at work. I can sing in the car. And I'm glad you can't hear when I do. But when we come together and sing together, there is a, a uniqueness about that that is very pleasing to the Lord. It's a sweet sound in his ears when the redeemed of God meet together, blessing the Lord. These first five verses are a reminder of the great importance, the great privilege of corporate worship. But that moves into verse six, and it really gives us in verses six and seven the reason that we come together and worship. Now, this is speaking of what the Lord has done for Israel, but also this is figurative what the Lord has done for every Christian. Verse 6 says, I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were freed from the baskets. You called in trouble and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of contention or the waters of Meribah. And then that familiar word that we find in the Psalms, Selah, or some pronounce it Selah, which most think is, is a musical term, which means to pause and reflect on what you've just heard, what you've just re read or sang. Now, if we think of verses 6 and 7 as they apply to Israel coming out of Egypt, it's easy to see the application there, right? I removed his shoulder from the burden, his hands freed from the baskets. Why were the children of Israel crying out to the Lord in the first place? They had been placed under an impossible burden. Pharaoh had tasked them with making bricks and then took away the supplies for making the bricks. So now their work was doubled. They had to go find the supplies, make the bricks, all of this, and this made them greatly cry out to the Lord. But when we see this as a figurative description of what the Lord has done for us, it's just as great, isn't it? If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want you to read and listen as I read these two verses as applying especially to you. I removed, this is the Lord speaking, I removed your shoulder from the burden. The weight of sin which, one rested, which once rested upon you is now gone. Those of you who've read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, this is the, the main illustration in that great allegory, right? Christian, the main character in this story, is so burdened by the weight of sin on his back, he can't find anywhere to rid himself of it until grace and mercy meet him. So when we read the sixth verse, and remember, this is the foundation for the first five verses. Why do we worship? Why do we meet together to sing, to make a joyful noise, raise the songs, blow the trumpets, all of these types of things? Why do we do this? Because our shoulder has been removed from the burden. Hebrews 12, 
speaks of the weight of sin which so encumbers us and ensnares us. Christ has taken all of that away. We read Isaiah 53 to begin the service. That's the work of Christ removing the burden from the shoulder or the back of his people. Our hands were freed from the baskets. We're no longer toiling under the law trying to pave a way for our salvation. Christ has done it all. Just like Israel in Egypt, we called in trouble and were delivered. When the Lord impresses upon you and when he impressed upon me the weight and gravity of my sin before him and my need for salvation, could we have done anything else but call in that day of trouble? And what if he had not answered? But yet the scriptures tell us that he is full of grace and mercy. And he hears the cries of his saints, his believers. Answering them in the secret place of thunder. Most see that as a reference to the giving of the law on Sinai. And in the waters of contention. That gets us down into verse 8. Where the Lord says, hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. There's many different ways to understand the word admonish. It's a correction. It's a warning. Notice that the Lord is correcting and warning a people that have left, that had left off of praising him and had forgotten the greatness of their salvation. So here's the admonition. Notice that he says, if you will listen to me. If you will listen. First he gives a reminder in verse 9 that there shall be no foreign God among you. Probably have a reference or a notation there in your Bible. It will take you back to Exodus chapter 20. Before the Lord gives his ten commandments to Moses, he says the same thing. Basically, I am the Lord your God. There shall be no foreign gods. You shall worship no other. Nor shall you worship any foreign god. And then in verse 10, and this is really the reason why I have you turn to this psalm this morning. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. The principle here is this. If we hunger and thirst for the things of God, he will give us all we can handle. The degree that we are hungering and thirsting for the things of God very often is the degree to which he will give us of himself. You see the picturesque language there, open your mouth wide and I'll fill it. You know, we see examples of this in nature all around us, don't we? You, you can picture the little bird in the nest just hatched. What is it doing? It's 
opening its mouth wide. What does the mama or the daddy bird do? They fill it. Much more close to home, you can picture the open mouth of a baby. Desiring something to fill and to satisfy. What does the mother do? She fills it. She brings what is needed to satisfy. So I began by giving an introduction of sort as to how many of us would say, and rightly so, sincerely so, that we are living the, quote, abundant life. A life that is clearly manifesting that Christ is in me. And again, the abundant life can't be measured by the, the amount of things that you possess, but by who possesses you. How many of us are living in this way where it is rightly said of us that we have opened our mouths wide and the Lord is now graciously filling? You know, one of the, the great sad realities of the day in which we live, and I suppose it's been a reality for, for all of time, is that there are some people who just begin to feel so empty in life that life is pointless, it's worthless. And then some take grave action and suffer horrendous consequences for it. It's one of the sad realities of our day, a feeling of emptiness, that life is pointless. The abundant life that Jesus speaks of in John 10 and what is referenced here in Psalm 81, verse 10, corresponds with what Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. I want you to notice a couple of things as we move on from this 10th verse. Notice that this is a gracious invitation of the Lord to a rebellious people. A people who had apparently forgotten how greatly they were saved, that their shoulders had been removed from the burden, their hands freed from the baskets. But yet the Lord in grace and mercy here is giving them this invitation again. Open your mouth wide, I will fill it. But the 11th verse says, but my people would not heed my voice. This is basically a summary of the, the happenings or the dealings of the people of Israel and their God in the Old Testament. That is why so often the prophets who refer to them as a stiff-necked people. Peter would borrow those words on the day of Pentecost as he stood up to preach. This invitation is given, but my people would not heed my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their counsels. Nothing more severe could be done than that. Think of this even to be handed over to Satan. That's Paul's directive for a, a person in sin in the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. His directive is to hand this person over to Satan. Why? So that they may be redeemed. 
So that, that putting them outside the church, handed over to Satan, may so shake them and get their attention that they see we've been placed outside the fellowship of Christ. We need to remedy that. We need to have repentance. That's the end goal. Or even you think of Job. Satan came and questioned the Lord concerning Job. The Lord gave him a lot of leeway to interfere in Job's life, only don't kill him. But the end of Job, after having been handed over to Satan, was better than its beginning, wasn't it? Yes, go, go and read the end of Job. Everything he lost, he got back twofold. But what about a people that have been given over to themselves? It's said in the Old Testament of Ephraim. It says, Ephraim has gone after foreign gods. And then the horrifying words that follow, leave him alone. Leave him alone. No more grace. No more mercy. And isn't that the progression that we see in Romans chapter 1? There is a point in that chapter where we read that God gave them over to themselves to do that which is not fitting, to do that which is an abomination to God. When he gives over a culture that is as bad as, as things can be, when he gives us over to ourselves to walk in our own counsels, verse 12, then the situation can be not more grave or worse. Because a rebellious heart that is desperately wicked, those are Jeremiah's words, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, only breeds and bears the fruit of desperation and wickedness. So to recount where we've been in Psalm 81 thus far, a reminder of the greatness of the opportunity and the privilege to join with the people of God in worship. Why? Because we've been given a great salvation. We've been reminded. The invitation has been extended. Again, I am the Lord your God. Put all of these other foreign gods away. All of these idols that are represented in your life, in mine, put them away. I am the Lord Open your mouth wide. Desire me and I will give you all of me that you can possibly handle. But may it not be said of us that we were as stiff-necked as Israel and would have none of him and that the Lord has given us over to our own stubborn heart and our own counsel. If you are not, and if I become not soft to the things of God, if we are calloused and hardened to the things of God, beware. Beware. And then verse 13, really, we see the heart of God displayed. Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. Now what we're going to read and what finishes out this psalm are all the blessings of God that the people of Israel forfeited by not opening their mouth wide and having the Lord fill it. This is reminiscent to Jesus just before his betrayal and arrest. 
He's making entry into Jerusalem. He stands there and he's weeping and he looks over Jerusalem and he tells Jerusalem what he would have done for them if they would have received it. But the same thing applies. They would not. So what is, how does this psalm end? Notice the things that the Lord says he would have done and have done soon. I would soon subdue their enemies. Well, if we make application of that to Israel strictly, we know that they had their share of enemies, right? The Lord said, if you walk in my ways, if you open wide your mouth, if you see me as being the satisfaction for your every want and desire, you would have no enemies. And if we carry that over into our own lives, what is our great enemy? Don't say Satan. It's our sin. Right? The, end, the, the old man that still resides in me and in you, not having been completely eradicated, but put down, dethroned, and we are to mortify him at every opportunity, if we would open our mouths and see that our satisfaction is in God alone, then he would subdue that enemy. The closer we walk with the Lord, the more distanced we are from sin. The less the temptation becomes. The closer we are to Christ and the manifestation of the Spirit in our own life, producing the fruit of the Spirit, Paul writes about in Galatians 5, then the further we become from this enemy that assaults us at every turn. But the Lord goes on in verse 14. He says, and, and I would turn my hand against their adversaries. Even the haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him. The Lord makes his people's enemies their friends sometimes for his own sake and for their good. Then we get down to verse 16. And here is where the blessings that Israel forfeited really begin to shine. He says, he would have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would have satisfied you. Now we see the tragedy of the psalm. The Lord offering all of this and the people not heeding his voice. To be fed with the finest of wheat. To be given the best of the things of God. Can you imagine just saying to the Lord, I want none of it, I won't have it. Well, that's in essence what we do when we don't open our mouths wide. When we don't desire the things of God. When we won't repent of sin, the Holy Spirit brings conviction and we just are so hardened to it that we will not, in humble submission to Him, confess and repent. Well, 
When we allow other things to so distract us that we just have no time for the things of God. I struggle with that just like some of you. When we allow other things, good things, to take the place of the best things. Now, the older I get, the more I realize I just don't have enough time in my day for everything that I would like to do. I just don't. And so some of those good things just have to go by the wayside so I can get to the best things. And then therein lies the struggle, right? I would have fed them also with the finest of wheat. Notice the Lord is saying, I would have given you the very best. You would have had no want, no desire. Your mouth has been opened. I will fill it. But he gives us two word pictures here. Both of these to the, to the culture of the Psalms really speaks loudly the finest wheat. How, how dependent were these people upon wheat to make their bread, to sustain their life, and honey from the rock? I would have satisfied you. And then the psalm comes to an abrupt end. It's cut off right there. It's almost as if we could pick back up with verse 11 again. But my people would not heed my voice. Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. You know, one of the proofs that the Lord is exceedingly merciful is that to a stubborn and rebellious people, He extends this invitation. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. So, let me ask you a question and please understand it in the way I'm asking it. How wide is your mouth opened? How much do you want of the Lord? How much do you want of his word, his ways, his people, his worship? Will you see from this psalm the degree that you desire is the degree that he will give? That's represented here in these words if, if you will listen to me, if you will heed my voice, oh, that my people would listen. The Lord is more ready and willing to pour out his blessings on us very often more than we are willing to seek them. And if you just do some honest dealing with your own heart, and as I do some honest dealing with my own heart, the reason that we find ourselves in times of spiritual coolness and in need of reviving is because we've closed our mouth. We've closed it. And in essence, what we've said, I found something better. Something better. 
to give myself to. Something better that satisfies me. Well, most of us have lived in the world long enough to know that if we're seeking satisfaction in worldly things, it's not going to happen. You can't get enough. You can't save enough. You can't buy enough. It's always more. Ed reminds me, I think it's John D. Rockefeller that said, is it not how much is enough? Just a little more. There is no end. But when we open our mouths, so to speak, spiritually and seek the things of God, you can take his word for it. Don't take mine. He says, I will fill it. He will give you what you desire. So let's pray and ask him to give us an ear to hear and that he would not give over to our own stubborn heart and our own counsel. Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for the mercy that we see in it that you extend this gracious invitation to a stubborn, grumbling, rebellious people who have forgotten the greatness of their salvation, that you did all the work in freeing them from their Egyptian slavery. Oh God, may it not be said of us that we have forgotten the salvation that came at such a great expense, that you have done all the work for us, that we are nothing more than recipients and receiving the benefits of what Christ has done as he stood in our place. Lord, may you give us grace and mercy to be able to open our mouths wide and then fill them with the good things of God. Fill them with the words of truth of Scripture. Renew our minds. Help us to, to understand things rightly. Lord, I pray you would extend this mercy to us yet again. Oh, Lord, we know we're not asking too much because you are full of mercy and delight in it. We thank you for being gracious. We thank you for calling us out of our sin. We thank you for showing us the beauty of the Savior. It's in his name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.